0: hello and welcome to the latest edition of how might we and this on this episode i'm really pleased to welcome adrian white as my guest and today we'll be talking about how might we return to purpose in talent and development so adrian welcome would you like to introduce yourself please
1: Thank you. Well, thanks for inviting me on, Scott. Yeah, so how to, how to introduce myself is a good question. I think for, for a lot of my career, I would, have, I would have said I was a development guy. Over the last maybe 10 years or so, I might have described myself more as a performance guy. But I think underneath that, or more currently, I would describe myself as a purpose guy. would be my my, my placement kind of technically I'm a social scientist by kind of return to studies and education in later life Um, super interested in in group dynamics social learning I studied and researched for about 10 years around diversity and inclusion aspects within social learning how people get to be members of the club and learn in whatever club that might be and I guess that that manifests itself in the real world in how I support individuals to navigate, fit in and perform and and build their careers, you know, based upon that. There's not much work for social scientists in the real world, so uh, I've spent most of my, my career, 25 years or so, in and around learning and development talent team and performance, coaching and executive right through to youth levels, and really building out leadership and organizational effectiveness functions. The last few years, pharmaceuticals and healthcare, but much of my career has been heavy industry, media, oil and gas logistics consultancy. So, yeah, definitely transferable skills, I would hope,
0: yeah. Yes, well, it sounds like a, a quite a broad, a broad church, if you would say, of um, experience that you've drawn from.
1: Yeah, I guess so. I guess that, that, that's what comes with age and moving around a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, I think it's interesting you said transferable skills, because I do believe that we have a quite a um, restrictive view of skills that we have. And when we learn them in one area, we believe that they're, they're applicable only in that area again.
1: Yeah, it, it's been a real current discussion about the transferability of what we do and collaborating with a, with a group on some other pieces of work. and. Mm-hmm. Some of the critiques about about approaches and models—they are actually cycling back to situational. So I think there's two sides to that. I think we have a lot of we have a lot that is transferable, but I also think it's it, we need to be cautious about believing that we can lift from one culture, you know, industries with with their own inbuilt cultures, lift from one culture and just simply step in and copy and paste into a, a completely different industry. There are definitely challenges within that as well.
0: Well, I think that's. Um, I know we haven't even touched the purpose yet, but it's just an interesting an intro, <laughs> in, introduction to this. Is uh, that I'm not a great fan of best practice. I like, bre- and it goes, to what you're saying, it's best principles or best purpose. So understanding why we're doing something and then say, how can we achieve that within this different culture, leveraging what we know from here and how might that help here rather than, as you say, lifting and cutting and pasting.
1: Absolutely. Oh, the. I, I will. Go, I will guide my language, but uh, whenever I hear that there's another benchmark and exercise, or there's a, another best practice review, absolutely, we need to be informed. We need to be educated. We need to learn the lessons from everybody else that, that's going on. But, but wherever we're doing that benchmarking, it's not here. It's not in my culture, in my organisation, with my people, with that landscape. So it's only the lessons that we need from that, uh, as you describe the principles. And then we've got to go back and redesign from those learnings what's going to work. Mo- what we can predict is most likely to work, work most effectively in that situation, right? Not let's take the number one option, copy and paste that. Oh, which consultant did they use let's phone them you know that's that's a disaster yeah as much yeah. as not
0: well the other thing is that just uh, stifles innovation as well and creativity because we just end up being sort of vanilla the same as everybody else because it's work somewhere we just assume that becomes like industry standard practice or whatever it is and and i think hr is renowned for having that sort of approach
1: yeah very much i mean in the early you know in my earlier study days which is you know now some decades you know some of those best practice models that we would have learned from or we would have studied we then got to go back and look at how those organizations played out many of those places are no longer trading anymore they they failed to adapt to the to the landscape and the situation changes so for us to then you know look at those models as core principles i think we've reached the point where we know that's not the way to go.
0: I was on a, some sessions this week, and I, I think a guy explained it really well. It's being comfortable with fuzzy outcomes mm. rather than mm. outcomes or well defined outcomes. So just be happy with that fuzziness.
1: Yeah, and then, then that's, that's going to be unpicked. We've had to really, I'm so lucky in the organization. I mean, it's not that that organization is, is really comfortable with failure at all. You know, they absolutely need to get to, but I'm not quite sure we're at the place where everybody agrees you know how we innovate we innovate by being well informed and then understanding the the dynamic of the of the current landscape and then agile trying and testing because by you know by nature of innovation you're not going to be sure you're not going to be sure when you when you embark upon a slightly different or significantly different approach so that requires a, a, a very different mindset as well
0: yeah, I think it was strong
1: delivered outcomes, but they're very comfortable with the process of getting there. So these are you know, the, the you know, typical agile principles of, of making very small bets and iterative improvements. When something falls on its face or, or just isn't quite as successful as you might have wished, as long as that, that's been the plan, that the first stage is some learning, we're going to make a small bet, we're going to do a small trial, and we're going to take some learning from that, and one of those outcomes is that we absolutely may U-turn from this. It may not be this at all. Then as long as that's understood before you embark on it, you're in great shape. If people are expecting kind of the finished article on trial number one, then yeah, you've got some problems at <laughs> that stage, right? That's not innovation.
0: Well, I think I can t- I can tell you are quite careful language. I love the way you say, if the, obviously failure is not something organizations would like to embrace, but understanding that maybe not things happening is, part of the process, but we still want the an outcome, a positive outcome, and learning that those things and, and learning from what we do in our experimentation is an important aspect of that.
1: Yeah, very much so. I mean, yeah, you must have lived through many, you know, many generations of new leaders coming in with their preferred practices and preferred approaches. And again, you know, maybe these this CEO or this particular, you know, global operations director, they're hired in because they got results in another org. So they bring their people and their packages and their approaches. But you know, as we as we progress down that, that making those huge, enormous shift changes in an organization, it is incredibly painful. It's probably suboptimal. But it's a lot more palatable to get the agreement to go look. We've agreed what the purpose is. to Come back to that stick. Why are we making these changes? What are the what's the pain points currently? What are we moving away from, and what are we trying to move towards? We've got that cleared up. How do we get there? Well, we're not exactly sure. We've got some general directions, some general trajectories, and how how are we going to get sure? Well, we get sure by making very small, palatable bets very small steps, you know, toes into the water, and we learn what we learn from that. That's a lot more palatable than saying, right, I'm I'm betting the farm on an entire shift change organizationally without really iteratively developing that to see what works. And, uh, you know, uh, my last couple of organizations have been either multinational or, or influenced by multinationals. So, you know, just because you've got it working well in North America or Asia Pacific, you don't believe for a second that that's going to generalize and translate all over the globe at all, right? It may need to be very different flavors of a solution to really work globally.
0: So, again, this is, I think, going back to the title, as you say, if we can agree the purpose what we're trying to achieve, and that goes, I think there's a guy called, I can't remember his name now, wrote a book called Getting to Yes Without Giving In, and he talks about principled negotiation. So sure, if, we, if sure. we can get to a point where we can agree on a principle, then the how becomes much more flexible with us because we're agreeing on what we're trying to achieve.
1: I, I think I can, I can almost underpin the direction of, of my almost my career in that. I mean, as, as a young kid delivering, you know, back-to-back training programs without much purpose, you know, we just, this is a rollout for some national. And, you know, after you've done the hundredth session of that, and you're really struggling to get people to link it to their work and link it to what they might be doing. You know, intuitively, you know that something's wrong in that situation. But you're too young, you're too junior, you're uneducated, you, you'd have no presence to be able to influence that over time. But, you know, I still feel the same 25 or 30 years later than I did back then, coming out the, coming out the, you know, of a, a massive delivery sprint. And, and now it's great. When I hear this, great, I want, I want to put my leaders on leadership training. Brilliant. I clap my hands and I say, great, why? Brilliant to hear that. Brilliant to hear that you're invested in their development. Why? And then we go into that discussion, Scott. You know, we go into where do you need them to be? No, no, no. You know, not where do you want them to be or what's your wish list, but where do you need them to be? Where, what's the predicted needs of your function? How does that fit into the organisation? Therefore, where you know what type of leaders do you need in your space? And usually, that's where we hit the first problem because we, you know, our stakeholders are not always hardwired to to have been having those thought processes, and that's okay. You know, I think many of our our peers and colleagues around the world, that's the point where they get frustrated. Well, you know, leaders should know and, uh, you know, we're not a shopping list for them to come and order from and all of that good stuff. But my point of view is it's like they're not paid to do our job for us either, right? We are paid to, to help these people have a thought process that gets them to have much more clarity about what the purpose of any particular intention is. And as you say, if we can spend some more time in that space, clap our hands and go brilliant why what are we looking to do and do that in a way that's not challenging (laughs) you know we're not challenging we're not trying to put them on the back foot we're not the guardians of the development budget you know we're not that but we are there to coach and help people through the thought process of getting to that purpose outcome and then we're in much better shape to design something that might help them and often we're talking ourselves out of work right? It's not going to be a development need many times. It's not going to be something on my lovely menu of palatable programs. It's going to be something that really, once you, if we just put that purpose on the table and everyone can buy into it, maybe everybody can work their own pathways out to achieving that, but it needs to be on the table. It needs to be clear. You know,
0: I think that's in some ways it's part of lnd isn't it so we, we i don't see lnd as the owners of learning i see D as the curators or the facilitators of learning in an organization however that may manifest itself so having those costs- well
1: yeah yeah and if i can continue to be contentious for somebody that's kind of looked after owned designed delivered curated i'm not a great i'm not a big fan of training yeah. So that's, you know, I'm, I'm a weird guy to hire into your organization to look after that space. It absolutely has its place. And to me, training is knowledge and awareness. That's training. And then the traditional blue collar background in me says that's, that's sure do observe correct skills development type stuff. But as we get into the maturity and the leadership and all, all of the other aspects, not a huge fan of extracting people from the real world and spending five days looking at mixed media PowerPoint interactions to talk about the theory of what's being done in the real world. I'm far more a fan of preparing people with the knowledge and awareness and then preparing them to perform because we understand what the purpose is, that that alignment steps in steps in there. So every time I can talk somebody out of training and into a real world solution to purpose. I I feel that I've done my job relatively well at that point, as long as it's, as long as I'm talking somebody into it, because it's the right thing. It's the right fit, you know, but all too long, you know, and it's been documented by far more experienced people than me. All too long if we don't know what the solution is, but we know there's a bit of a problem, then we throw training at it, throw enough training at it, and then you know send them back when they're fixed type of culture. And I think I hope that we're moving beyond that now, Scott.
0: <laughs> you know? I think so. I mean, I had a chat with um, Paul Matthews, who's written some books about, and his area like that transferability. How do we how do we get the transfer of stuff that we might teach people or give people that knowledge? How can we get it transferred into Uh, behavioral change in the organization that has the impact right so
1: I would absolutely and I've been in that space as we all have for a long time and you know as I read as I go into my last sort of decade of my career uh, I'm pretty confident and comfortable to say when I look back at it I think I've done I've probably spent 50% and maybe I'm being easy on myself maybe longer you know more than 50% of my career kind of doing it wrong And I'm comfortable to say that at this stage. And if not entirely wrong, at least suboptimally. And I think that I feel that that mindset to say, you know, on a 70-20-10 model, which I feel has been so misrepresented by HR and organizationally over the years, the the 70, as in the lion's share, is often the afterthought. It's like what what project can we find or what organizational challenge can we find to implement the learning well you know sort of newsflash nobody in our organization cares about learning outcomes not even the hr directors usually to be fair they care about performance they care about evolving practice they care about impact but there's find somebody in your organization that cares about learning outcomes, because I can't, honestly speaking. They're a mechanism. So I, I think the cart might be before the horse in that regard. We're not looking for opportunities to implement and apply. We're looking to be working from the real world and preparing for that real world implementation, not looking for the not looking for the opportunity to bridge the learning. The learning is is the mechanism for what we're doing, you know, and, and that should be in my humble opinion, based, centered, homed, you know, not just in the flow of work, but in the real world,
0: you know. I think it's, That's a, where, yeah, yeah. it's a book I've read and it's about the 60s and what he talks about is about this learning learning outcomes and then there's business outcomes. And I think I, I wrote something on LinkedIn and like the title was it is people don't pay you buy your training, they buy the impact.
1: Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And now i don't want to get sorry go ahead yeah
0: go ahead no that's a perennial problem isn't it within lnd is about how can we how can we do this and i, th- I think i think what you've said is, is an interesting way of looking at it. are we looking at it the wrong way around should we go from as you say purpose what are we trying to achieve and then draw back from that so asking questions about what is this business need we're, we're trying to meet what needs to be happening differently for us to help meet that and then then that then you've really started to identify the things that need to be doing differently and then that then you can work backwards from that and develop something that's likely to be more likely to be successful
1: yeah yeah we i don't know why it is i really don't know why it is but but particularly in the leadership space we tend to be more comfortable with generic approaches you know in a way that just would not be tolerated in in a in a technical environment as an example you know, we, we wouldn't send, we wouldn't send you know, four of our operators away and say, look, there's some technical training center away down the south of the country. We'll go down there for a, a couple of weeks. They've got all different types of machinery and equipment. I'm not quite sure what you need to use when you're back at work, but go get some training on, you know, kind of an overview training on these various shifters and machines and equipment and then and then come back and we'll kind of see what we want you to operate back in the workplace. You know, we wouldn't tolerate that. Yeah, we've just, we've just hired in. You know, we've just bought in or hired in a couple of million-dollar cranes. There, this particular spec or this particular thing, we now need you to have very specific technical development in the in the optimal operation of those pieces of equipment. But for some reason, we don't really translate that into generic leadership areas. And I'm not saying we should. I'm not saying we should go anywhere near that far. But I, I think we should at least be pretty clear on what the kit is that they're going to drive when they come back to work. And also, I don't think we should be sending them off to that technical training center. I think we should be doing that in the real world. So some of the frameworks that we've tried to work on, and it's not, it's not, when I say 50% or or even more, I think I've been doing it wrong. It's not that it was 50% 15 years ago, and now we've got it right. Far from it. (laughs) Far from it, you know. I think there's been elements that have been successful, but it's been hard to translate and, and build that out. But Developing leaders to perform first and learn through that performance is one of my underlying principles. And it does go against a lot of the design and the the, the content and the structures when I go into an organization. They will tend to be topic led and and beautifully designed and beautifully delivered, you know, far better than perhaps I could in, in many ways, but still topic led whereas when we come back to you know we come back to the actual purpose and deliverables i want to prepare people for for those deliverables and it's only preparation it's not academic knowledge and awareness it's prepare, preparing to apply for what that current challenge is and i would go as far as breaking that down on a quarter by quarter and even monthly by monthly basis to make sure that we're not bombarding leaders with you know so much theory and so much knowledge which Cumulatively may be fabulous, five, seven years down the line, some of that stuff may be absolutely essential, but it's not, it's not addressing or speaking to the challenges that are being faced tomorrow when they head back into the workplace. And I think when, when I, my approach to that is overlaying the role life cycle. If we look at, if you were promoted tomorrow, then there's, you know, you kind of know what that first couple of quarters is like, you know, what the one year is like, you know, what the second year kind of acceleration is like, you know, what the third year bridge is. And then by the fourth year, you're looking for your next challenge or your, your next role. And when we overlay that kind of role life cycle into the employee life cycle for their careers, I think that helps us then narrow down what might be most useful for those leaders at, the, at that particular time.
0: And I think that's something we could learn from people like marketing. So
1: Absolutely. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Let's, let's give something. I mean, even I had a discussion as well the other day, um, talking to somebody said, well, we know when things like your performance management is happening and we know that the sort of skills that you want somebody to demonstrate to be successful in, in delivering a good performance management interview and assess whatever, whatever you've got, I'm not going to talk about performance management per se, because I think it's appalling in most organizations. But if you've got that process in place and you know sort of at December, your, your managers are going to do it, especially if it's their first, first year as a manager, then I think that's where you could do some stuff with them and say, right, this is, this is what they need to know. This is the skills they need to adapt and develop and the performance is here. And how can we then do that with them at that point when it's necessary for them to be, perform effectively in that role?
1: Yeah, so so to some degree, the the kind of just in time things that you can predict are great, and and that goes through financial and headcount planning. You know when that's I know when that's going to be in 2024 in my organization, unless something changes. So you can predict, you know, these these business cycle events as well as the, the HR cycle events, but you can also predict the role life cycles of their teams. If all of their teams are five year in and they're certain career points, you can pretty well predict that they're gonna have some new starters or less experienced people growing into their teams. Lots of, things that, lots of things that we can predict. But in the role life cycle, and I've certainly had this constantly, you, you drop into a new role. You, you know that that first quarter is all about learning the landscape, learning the, learning the stakeholders, doing your analysis of your resources, looking at your existing plan and how aligned and effective it is. It's just assessment, right? Assessing you know which stakeholders are on board, what, what the the real underlying missions are, not just what's written but what's under the table, what the agendas are, and then it's about it's about getting that plan and and then forming that plan in a way that's palatable you know to the what's in it for the different stakeholders and how do we need to shift and make ready teams and resources and and make any changes to the to the the budgeting structures wherever it might be and then we know it's about gaining some you know making some starts to that you know actually getting some traction and then we know it's about you know speeding that up and escalating it so again, when I've got somebody dropping into a, about to be hired into or promoted into a role, even if they've been a leader or manager before, they're still going to go through some pretty predictable experiences to varying degrees. And I think that lets me, that lets us strip out the, the less necessary and just focus on what is likely to be the challenge on that period. And once they're, you know, and if they're there really quickly in that space, great. Play some more golf, you know. Do whatever you want to do, right? But all the leaders are going to take a little bit longer to get to that that place. So um, the cynics might might look at this as hand holding leaders. I would say that I would say that we need the focus. I mean, love HR, but I mean we love a toolbox, right? We love a package of resources in our space, and it's good. You know, it's good to be able to give these things, and they're available to people, but. I think those tools need to be put into a structure that says if you need it and if you want to go off the rails a little bit here and and, and freestyle your shop, happy days, it's your shop. But should you need to drop back onto the rails, this is what's pretty predictable that's going to take you through. Really good planning, really good establishment, really good long-term uh, development of your resources and teams. Right, so it's always there to come back to should that leader need it. And then with good support and coaching, we we try and take away the blind spots as well. Right.
0: Yeah, and no, it's amazing, isn't it? That this it sounds so um, obvious. Different, well, I, uh, <laughs> different things and yet we tend to have for want of a better word sometimes a sheep dip approach to stuff yeah
1: That's yeah it. absolutely we do
0: everyone's going to get lnd tra- uh, sort of training in leadership because um, i remember i when i got promoted in the only company i really worked for i did 18 years and i, I applied for leadership development 18 uh, 10 years later i still hadn't got it it's just because by the time it came round to, there was a space available that I thought, Do you know, what most of the stuff you're going to talk about is I've been there and done it. Now I'm helping. Yeah, yeah. I'm helping new leaders. I'm sort of coaching them because I've learned through experience by doing these things.
1: Right, uh, 2020, ten, uh, and but depending on that organization, at ten years, you might still have been a new leader. Who knows, right? But um, look, it's it's there can be challenges though. To, to doing that. So look, I would open up, I, I would promote and open up the ability for anybody to drop onto this in the current quarter. They don't need to, you know, wait or be nominated or wait for a space to be available. And that means that that we might have a, a cohort of two people, one quarter, and we might have a cohort of 20, another, another quarter. And again, so that's when we maybe get into the communities of practice space where we're looking to have some community membership, even if you're on a cohort with one other person, because there's only two new leaders that quarter. That's absolutely, absolutely fine. You, you you get a key to the to the private members club of that that community of practice, and that's what's waiting for you on on the other side. Not just that cohort experience, but yeah, I mean, the other. I think that one of the options, though, and I think why many leaders in this space have got chance to play now as is, is being COVID. You know, from a scientific perspective, to be able to look at the effectiveness, we kind of need to isolate, remove, and observe, right, from a scientific approach. So that's not palatable normally. Let's just stop all of our development and all of our leadership initiatives, and let's see what damage it does to the organization. That's probably not going to go down too well in most, most uh, C-suites. However, COVID did that to a certain degree. For a lot of organizations, what you were doing is no longer, it was no longer possible for a lot of orgs. Now, of course, lots of other changes, lots of other things going on in that inverted commas test environment. But what I think what it did do was was give everyone the chance to question everything. You know, what's essential? What adds some value? You know, what's kind of just nice to do? And and frankly, what should have been shot in the heads? Years ago, you know, and it, it because there was no, there's no, and I don't feel now that there's any great emphasis to go back to how we were, particularly in many, many organizations. But there is, a, there is we need to not be in survival mode anymore. And we do need to decide what is our longer term new ways of working strategies and how do we develop and support people to be effective, effective to purpose and performance within that so I think it gives us a pass I think it gives us a pink slip to be able to test trial and, and do things that may have been more difficult two years ago uh, and I'm certainly sensing that in my communities
0: well, I think it's my view on COVID I think it's accelerated a lot of things that were happening
1: yeah, I would tend to agree yeah I would yeah. tend to agree
0: and I do think one of the things is and I say we go back to purpose as well I do think we really need to look at how we develop leaders because how to manage and lead hybrid stroke remote teams is completely different for how do we how do we interact with people we share an office with and i think it
1: is yeah a
0: whole different set of considerations to have and i really do think we need to review leadership and i think trust trust and purpose is going to become much much more important in organizations and leadership
1: Yeah, look, I I would tend to agree, but I would also caveat that with the the level of change and the level of adaption required has been really different depending on where the organization was before. So for many multinationals that were, you know, and a lot of firms uh, have moved to that globalized rather than centralized approach. So the team that's running whatever, you know, the new sexy leadership programs, that may have members from six different countries in different time zones. That may have been the way that they were before that. So the the, the fact that the local office is closed and there were you know COVID absences and, and all the rest of it, that might not have affected their. You know their kind of gameplay as much as it would have done with a massive national with a huge headquartered central office, and the impact of that has been has been significantly different. And also their tech readiness, and not just the actual tech bolt-ons, but people's comfort and and level of sophistication working in in virtual environments. That takes a couple of years to ramp up, doesn't it? You know, well,
0: And getting get the IT, get the IT system with the yeah and all that. Stuff. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. If the actual tools were there in the first place. But even when the tools are there, and I think a lot of people have spoken on that, right, we've now got it all and all the tools and we can do breakout rooms and we can do yada, yada, yada. We can collaborate on, on, you know, mural, we can do a thousand things, but just people were just not used to it right so staring into somebody else's eyes on a video call is not the way that we physically have a meeting <laughs> you know normally you know you're lucky if you get 10 percent of eye contacts now it's 90 percent, and it's really draining you know it's really wearing but uh, a lot of that all comes down to the point and uh, you know we're all adapting and finding our ways through that i have a lot more 15 minute meetings now than what i ever did before we're, we're now replacing the informal components of of sharing thoughts and ideas can't just be replaced with formal decision-making meetings that's never never works never will. but coming back to that you know that that purpose statement i was thinking when you were talking about that that the uh, one of the work you know one of the most disparaging uh, comments as kids in the playground was you know kids would say to each other what's the point of you you know, which still kind of makes me smile. All of these laters. It was like, what's physically? What's the point of your existence? You know, it was like the a disparaging comment in the '80s. Well, actually, that's a really good question. You know, when we when we translate that back to you know, grey-haired and balding senior leaders and the and the 30-somethings that are coming in, shaking things up. You know, actually, that what's the point of you is a really really good question and something that just needs to be it needs to be brought out time and time again. Because the answer to that is not likely to be the same on each 12 months that you might ask that. The answer to that is likely to change.
0: I think, yeah, because we, we evolved, don't we? As you say, how you described yourself over your career is, 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 is evolved. And, and now you call yourself or refer to yourself as the purpose guy, whereas before it was the other, other aspects that were more important. Uh, into
1: yeah, it. yeah. So I think publicly, I still might I still might put myself forward as the performance guy in organisations because it's still more palatable. It's still more, yeah. I know where I'm going. To, I know where I'm going to bolt that in. Whereas the purpose guy, you know, it does worry people. It's it's a bit fluffy. But the the point is that has to sit underneath if we want to perform. If we want the performance, we have to get the purpose right. So I would say very regularly that if we, you know, the question was, if we want to return to purpose in talent and in development and all of these aspects, I I, I place ourselves very clearly. We are in the performance business. What's my what's the point of view, Adrian, in this particular? We're in the performance business. We're here to do all the things that are necessary and support all the things that are necessary to optimize performance. We're in the performance business. And we get really busy with all the all the transactional things, right? All, my scorecard is, is full of things that are, are inputs. They're not outputs. They're not impacts. Getting better at that. Organization's getting really good actually. But the, the default is we tend to fill it with the do with the things that we do. Mm. We got to get away from that. Right, we we've got to get it. That is not the purpose. Those are just inputs. And if we filled our days, you know, if we filled our week 95% with those those KPI checklist things, then we're we're not taking that time to, to revisit purpose. But within how we how we support and develop leaders, how we how we make and those are just individuals, right? How do we then get those groups to work effectively together? How do we make sure we're not incentivizing one part of the business to absolutely destroy another part of the business? All so common absolutely knock their results and KPIs out of the park unfortunately those results have got negative impacts elsewhere in the business as well very very common so how we get all of that together yeah we're in the performance business but to be effective we've got to be strong in the purpose business
0: yeah that's where I would place that I think that's what what we had before we came on air and talk about the importance of language yeah yeah and it's and there is I think there is a, a a sign of some of the stuff we're talking about is seen as flat, and there's as you say, it's not that palatable for some people. And say, look, I'm going to help you develop your purpose because by doing that, you will improve performance. And people, yeah. But if you say I'll help you improve performance, people will be much happier, or they can relate, yeah. I think, a bit better.
1: Uh, absolutely, uh, but I also think there's there's different flavors of purpose, isn't there? So uh, as we get into, you know, what. For what purpose did the organisation create the role that you've just been hired to fill, Mr. New Leader, Miss New Manager, Mrs. New CEO? You know, for what purpose did the, the did the board sign off your huge contract? Now, hopefully, there is some understanding. Hopefully, there is some understanding of that. But it, it concerns me and worries me that how little that that understanding exists sometimes. So sometimes, you know, Miss New Leader goes into that role because very successful succession plan and best candidate available. And really, the, you know, they're coming in, taking over from a, a seven-year experience predecessor. You know, they're just trying to survive. They're, they're just trying to run that shop and, and not let it go downhill and worry about all of the good existing people leaving and following the previous leader. It, it's a really stressful, tricky time. Sometimes, right? Sometimes. So understanding why that function exists, and it might, well, of course I know why my function exists. So, do you? Do you really understand why that function exists? Has it always existed? Has it always existed with the same scope and description? So why, you know, where have those changes come from? So going back to those fundamentals and going to their boss to ask that question often won't deliver the result, won't deliver the answer, because maybe they haven't really, truly, deeply considered their, their structure and purpose of, of why those functions and why those individuals are in place. So it's not fluffy at all. It's fundamental. And, you know, we're not talking about changing the world and and redesigning org structures, although sometimes that's absolutely necessary, but we are talking about just, can you just cut down the noise and, and cut out some of that busy work and, and re-prioritize your day so it now becomes 60, you know, 60, 40 on the priorities of purpose rather than let's do the busy work. And, oh, my God, there's these super important things, but I just never get time to do them. Right? It can li- it literally can be as simple as that. Just making sure that the lion's share of your work is actually aligned with why are you in that org? <laughs> you know, what, what value do you really add? Why are you
0: there? It's an interesting question. So one of the activities I do for when I work with people in L&D You say, can you, can you write your own manifesto?
1: Right.
0: Okay. Imagine your job was up for election. Yeah. 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 But the employees, the middle managers, the senior manager, the board, whoever, or the whole organization. So you've got to say, this is what I stand for. This is what I believe. This is the value I'm going to add. This is why, this is why I would like you to vote for me because this is what I'm going to be able to do. And people find that quite challenging answering those questions.
1: I'm sure they do. And it's no critique of the individuals. You know, we're hired in to do those inputs often. Mm. And our challenge is to go, great, you know, we take that on board. But while we're here doing those inputs, let's have a real assessment about what, you know, which of those inputs are super necessary. And, and are they necessary now? Are they necessary as we come into a different phase of a, of a global pandemic? Maybe they were super necessary 18 months ago. But are they now? And if they're important, are they a priority? Right. We can all get it, you know, involved in our own importance. And if they're a priority, how does that priority compare to the other priorities of the organisation? Should I be pushing that priority just because I'm, I can network and I've got, I can, you know, power through something and get it delivered, and turn my scorecard green? Is that really what it, what's best for the organisation? Or in some cases, should I be putting that on ice for 12 months and redirecting and supporting another part, which isn't really my core scope, but it's a much bigger purpose and priority for the organization. Now, that's the agility that I'm pleased to say I'm seeing many HR practitioners breaking through now that absolutely get that. And it's a different mindset. It's a different, often a different generation, although I don't want to be negative to my own generation. I don't want to in any way whatsoever, but we are seeing... You know, bear in mind millennials turn forty this year, right? So the millennials are not the the youngsters they once were.
0: (laughs) Starting to make me feel old. (laughs) I'm not even a millennial hearing me. Yeah, indeed. Next week.
1: And I can't comment on that. Let's not get into on ageist oh, debate well. whatsoever. Well, my, well. my fifth decade—I still feel like I'm about 24, but apparently the mirror doesn't agree. But yeah, you know. So I'm really pleased to see some some really strong HR practitioners coming in and going. As I look around the the organisation, one of the one of the slowest functions in there is HR. Now we're not being binary and black and white and beating any function up in in any way, but. You know, if the if the operations are going to be adaptable and move around their landscapes quickly, we can't be, you know, doing once a year programs that are generic and and topic led. That is not going to support operational changes and landscape changes. It's just not going to do it. Now, for us to be as quick as operations, that means we have to rethink. We have to rethink our shops. We have to rethink how we do it. Our speed to market has to be agile in the way that IT has become agile in the way that IT has led agile in many ways. And some of the, you know, some of those IT colleagues were still in transactional work. But those that were driving have been driving at the fastest possible pace and have been ahead of the curve and have been creating those opportunities. And we've got a lot to learn from them, as you say, from marketing. Otherwise, you know, again, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of an enabling function if we can't enable? What's the purpose of a support function if we can't support? Uh, we've got to be there, you know, boots on the ground, at the same speed as the operations that we're supporting.
0: Yeah, and I think traditionally, I think HR and L&D have been more retrospective in how they've worked in historical because they work on old data. So you, you yeah, can manual yeah, learning analysis, then you would create something. that takes you three months to create, and then you, you roll it out. So it's another three months. So we're now working... On trying to bridge a gap that was identified six, nine, twelve months ago, and how do we know that's still an important gap? So, yeah, I, I do agree we need to look at ways and just be open our minds, open the eyes to how we can actually help bridge some of those gaps and deliver that help deliver that performance that's required. And it, it doesn't require. Yeah,
1: I look absolutely agree, uh, but I I think my own experience and, and what I'm hearing from others is is intention and an intention gets a lot of you know it gets a pass it gets a lot of credibility so we're, we're very worried in in the hr space and we seem to be very worried about the metrics around the measurements about around green scorecards these, these these are very important but i think that's because of the absence of many other metrics if you had other metrics that they wouldn't need to be such a such a concern and i've, I've always felt that when you're partnering with with senior leadership towards purpose, towards what's super important and and has to be really important, not a nice to, not an initiative, but but genuinely this is for the the survival, the growth, the the optimization of the organization, you get a pass. Firstly, you get a pass around metrics. It, it's not so important to measure every, every aspect of it, but there has to be, there has to be an understanding of the, of the correct intentions, and there has to be true partnership with the leaders that are trying to make the change. Now, once you're at the table, I find it's a lot, it's a lot easier. And People say, well, you can't get to, you can't get to the table. We're, we're hovering at the door waiting for somebody to place an order. But I would circle that all the way back to purpose again. When you, when you, you know, sit down formally or informally, And have those virtual or physical coffee chats around, look, you know, where's the pain, man? You know, where are the difficulties? Where's the challenges? What do you need to achieve in the next year or two that you really don't have a solution to? You know, I promise you, I don't have a magic one to fix it for you. But, you know, can we can we work on that together? Can we then look at what's going to be required for you to get where you need to be? And maybe that's not development, but your leader, I find that my senior leadership teams, they don't care how busy, they don't care how many programs are being run. They care about results. And, and if you deploy your resources to genuinely support, you know, support the leaders to achieve what they need to achieve, nobody cares whether that your contribution was, was 90% or 2%. They just care that you were on board and you were, you were, you know, fighting alongside them to achieve the same things, right? So it's very generalist, but I, I would still put that in my manifesto. <laughs> to speak to yeah, your point
0: you yeah. right. and, but I think the w- what helps in that that, that helps us then de- develop our own metrics so what we're doing is saying we're helping this person achieve their goals so if what we're doing right. is helping achieve that then we can say right, we're supporting and we're enabling the objectives of the organisation to be met whether that's yeah. Yeah. training whether that's through coaching whether that's through doing action learning sets or whether that's just helping them look at their processes and saying are you really sure yeah
1: um,
0: yeah Or my
1: favorite, which is to extract the learning from the experience that they're actually having as they're trying to perform, extract the learnings, extract what you can generalize. Not a created learning environment, but the whole world's the learning environment. But we're so efficient at filtering data out because there's only so much that we can take on board, right? So just to be able to come in and put a couple of lenses in now to say what you're trying, you're trying something, you're seeing what works, what doesn't work, you're ramping up, you're escalating. And through that, to be able to help people take the learnings from that, that, that's actually happening, and then guess what? You don't need to have. You don't need to think of a creative implementation project for your leadership program, because the world, <laughs> your day-to-day work, the the three-year strategic plan—that is your implementation project. You know, that's the the real world. I was determined not to drop any names in in this, and but I'll I'll refer to one of my mentors. a guy called uh, Dr. Martin Gardner. Mm-hmm. I worked under him in, in in oil and gas at one time, and and he faced. He faced the challenge. It, we, we built out a kind of an executive retreat, which ran every year, and it became more it became more challenging, and it became more impactful as the years went on. We ran it, I think, for eight years, and it ran a couple of years after I was there as well. Kind of a mix between an executive boot camp and an experiential learning that was kind of focused on the challenges of the day, that was really focused. And he got the, you know, he, he, Martin sat with the, the senior team saying, you know, how, what, how do we measure this? How do we measure the impacts of this this program, which had become everybody was fighting to get a seat on this by the end. It was limited at forty five top execs, and you know they were narrowing it down from a hundred people who demanded a place on it every year type of thing to to this top top group. And um, and I come back to that point of intention because Martin's approach for for that was well, we are here to support you. This is only a focal point within the within the year. It just happens to be a focal point that brings together lots and lots of conversations, initiatives, works, supports, redirections, recalibrations, audits, assessment. It brings it all together in a boot camp to go where were we, where are we now, what next. And if you want an accurate measurement, I'll come back to the earlier point, and Martin said this if you want to be super sure, if you're not absolutely convinced it's adding value, let's not run it. Let's not run it this year. And you could feel this ripple go through the team, including the CEO. No, 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 we're not saying don't run it. So intuitively, all of that senior team recognized that this was a valuable contribution to that organization steering its rudder straight. Mm. And it was just the focal point that, that we put together. And whilst they were asking for a hard metric around that, they also recognized they probably didn't need one. They didn't need a solid metric. They just needed to know that that team led at that time by, by Dr. Martin, that team was fully in the trenches with them. And they were, their, their efforts were focused on helping those individuals collectively then as a team to, to, to move their shop in the right direction. And that was actually the only metric that was required. Now, I know a lot of our, you know, your listeners go, like, yeah, but in my organization, I need to submit my quarterly report. And you will, but I feel that that quarterly report gets easier when you get the purpose lined up and like i say the passes the you may still have to go through a year or two of, of reporting bums on seats and learning hours and, and things of like that but you know you get past that by by having shared purpose
0: i think if you get to that shared purpose you'll not you'll you'll see more as a sort of taken from a, a book is more of a trusted advisor to people right right absolutely and then because they value what you're going to put in and they value what you're doing and, and what you've done in the past. So as you say, historically, if you, if you do it over a period of time and they really value what it's in within one to two years, then you're much more trusted because you've delivered and you've got a history of deliver.
1: hundred percent. And also a message to our, our youngest members, you know, in this organization Um you know, to stitch that together, I would, you know, comfortably with, say, 50, maybe even 80% of my career, I've been doing it wrong or, or suboptimally to some degree. To reach that trusted advisor stage, you don't, you know, you don't need a pot belly and, and a lack of gray hair like me and, and various bits of papers from universities. You absolutely don't. You, to be a trusted advisor, you've got to be, you've just got to have gone through two or three battles with the troops, You've got to be alongside them for those two or three battles through that, that real pain point of that organization. And you've got to have been there, not just proposing a program, but helping, supporting, guiding to, 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 to ask that. And so some of my recent team members have been, you know, well placed in their 20s, have developed into phenomenal coaches within a year. You know, and I mean, really elegant, strong practitioners in their, in their mid 20s. And I've seen, I've seen some of those individuals become properly trusted advisors at a point when others may be thinking, you know, imposter syndrome, you know, that we've got to wheel out the person that's run this for decades and has, has done that. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, I'm totally convinced you can reach trusted advisor 18 months, two years by being in the trenches with the people that you're supporting and not being precious about your deliverables, but putting that subordinate and saying, no, we're here, I'll redirect my shop just to support what's important to you right now. And that, you know, change the change the annual plan because the business plan's changed as well, right?
0: Absolutely. And I think that goes back to what we talked about, have purpose to begin, understand your purpose, and then act in a way that delivers on that in a regular basis consistently. And if you do that, then you get to the point where people will Say so they, they will be coming to you and saying, I have this. And I think that's a good way of how people perceive you. Do you get asked to do something or do people come and ask you for help and your input? And yeah, I I you, yeah. Where you are as an individual, or as a department within an organization?
1: Yeah, the natures of those relationships, absolutely. I think I read something earlier this morning, though, from one of our colleagues that was uh, – one of our peers that was saying, look, you know, I can see what the development needs to happen for these guys, but they don't want to engage. And, you know, I asked them and, and they won't share with me what their pain and what their challenges are type of thing. But they might not want to share that. You know, some people are going to be very open and going, like, oh, what's your thoughts on this? But there's other people in the organization that may not be so forthcoming. And then the purpose then is around is around their outcomes, not necessarily initially their pain points, because they may not want to share that, they may want, not, not want to expose their, their, you know, to, to the rest of the world, their scorecard's green, and that's the only thing that's ever getting outside of their shop, you know, their pain's not getting out, they won't share it, they one a minute. and we certainly saw that a lot in healthcare as an example, but people are a lot more open to talk about what comes next. What's the next level? What's the next set of goals? Because they, they can't be achieved. They can't be accused or, or pulled for not fully achieving something that they're they're scoping. You know, it's still a future-placed item. So you might not get to play with everybody with the current pain, but we're a lot more likely to get to play in the future in the future plans because there's no threat to that. You're not a threatening figure or a threatening force. And then the la- the last co- the last point on that is that. To have any chance of being successful at that, we we have to put humility at the very front of that. So really a successful program, it cannot have my name attached to it, can't have my function being seen as a leading figure in that. The the operation, you know, that particular function, department, leader, they need to have 110% of the credit of everything that's gone on. And in my experience, that, Karma's a great thing. That tends to trickle back around again. You know, the trust, your reputation builds quietly. People might not admit every aspect that you had or everything that you did. But, you know, if somebody else is struggling, they might say, pop and have a coffee with Adrian, see if he can have a chat with you about something. And, you know, that's that's how your brand and reputation in an organization comes on. But if we try to take credit for any of these things, if we try to hold them up and sell them too strongly, look, leaders don't like that. What's the story there? Mm, They were struggling, they weren't doing so well, but hey, you know, L&D rode in or talent rode in and they fixed it and now they're okay. Yeah, that's not a good narrative. (laughs) That's not a selling story, right? So enabling others and doing that absolutely behind the scenes is, is one of the secrets to me. It's one of the secrets of success.
0: I think being selfless what we do because we're, we're there to serve other people and as you say don't know yeah. no, yeah. does, does it matter who if they take the credit or we at the end of the day the performance has been achieved and yeah this yeah. is happy and we've achieved our goal yeah
1: and absolutely and those that are worried about that and i get it you know if you're trying to establish yourself or build your brands earlier in your career and stuff and if you're concerned about i've done a year's work and nobody knows anything i've done about it you know i'm still seen as a you know whatever if anybody's worried about that there's nothing cooler there's nothing cooler in terms of brand image and reputation than it than something that's been successful and then it trickles out later that you had a hand or an involvement in that trickles out informally or word of mouth that you had a hand That is is way cooler and way more powerful anyway. So if anybody is worried about that, I would say don't be. If you want the maximum on that, let it trickle out through word of mouth because that's a lot better than you reporting at the you know the company's quarterly success initiative review that uh, you know you've turned around a particular department yeah nobody's ever going to call you if you do that
0: (laughs) i think that's that then people can trust again that's that trust about information i can tell this person something and that they're a confidant and that really does so i think the two things that build trust a lot is that being the confidence in information where people can trust you're involved and you're not going to spill the beans but also then being selfless in how you approach it
1: yeah yeah, absolutely. And if you're not comfortable about that, if you're in this space and, you know, you want the credentials, you want something that comes with that, I'm going to have to question, you know, you're going to have to question. So we often host, I'm sure you have, we often host HR generalists that will then want to do their two to three years. In my space, because they're cycling around before the career path onto HR director. We, you know, we, we love those colleagues. They're long-term friends. But I have to be awfully cautious about deploying those individuals on the types of projects. Because, you, you, you know, it's not wholly in the now in any way. You, you just have to take a transparent blend into the background supportive role to be effective in this space. That doesn't mean that you don't stand up at the board and, and fight your corner really strongly. But in terms of the execution, in terms of the wins, it's got to have that. It's got to have the business's name all over it. Your name's not even involved, and like I say, your you, your value to the org will will be will be recognised. I've never had it not. You know, short term, it's not recognised absolutely. Longer term, I've never seen it not recognised. I, think- I would just encourage people to have faith. It's coming, you know.
0: Absolutely. And I think when you go into that board and you stand up and fight. Even if people haven't said that you're involved, they're much more likely to be on your side. And even if they're not going to agree wholeheartedly, they're very unlikely to resist. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. neutralize any resistance to what you want. And some of them will become advocates of what you do, even because they know you've added value. They know what you do works. Yeah, absolutely. When you're doing that, they're going to support you. And that makes it a lot, as you say, then you get much more passes and and flexibility and, and freedom to act and do what you think is right. Because people trust you more, so they yeah. get more, more leeway.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think also back to the old adage, we've all got a boss. Uh, so some people in our space now, they're working for the strategic function because they're doing more OD and OE, which tends to not be HR so much these days. My current role kind of currently has both those areas in, might change in future. Or if you're in the you know more traditional HR space within talent or, or development, whatever it might be. If you were choosing a job, if you, were, if, you were, if you were fortunate enough to have some options going forward, I would absolutely choose your boss. Because whether you're reporting into a, a strategic executive onto the board or you're reporting into a, you know, a global CHRO, whatever it might be, that boss needs to be a servant leader for your, your shop. And if they're not, if they don't get it, it's going to be really difficult. You know they need to be advocating for you, so I would. You know I, I'm the luckiest person in terms of who I work with. Very very happy, and you know when it when it came time, time for me to look for my, my changes of roles. Yeah, of course organizations and what what the task at hand was, but the boss was very very important because they, they your partners in crime, right? So either your strategic reporting line or your your HR reporting line they have to be advocating, they have to be making a space in front of you to allow you to run your shop, you know, as effective. So if anybody is in that lucky position of, of, you know, having one or two options, I I would ignore the package, I would ignore the brand name and organization, I would choose the boss, (laughs) choose the the right person who you can partner with, you know.
0: That's a long term view, isn't it? Because then it will pay dividends in the future. More than the short? Yeah,
1: just uh, absolutely. Your ability to, to practice. And that's what the question I would ask. And that's the question I asked this time when I moved uh, only a year, 18 months ago. Uh, what's, my, what's my ability to practice in this
0: organization?
1: And that, you know, that was a significant decision-making. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think I was somebody was talking to me about I'm working for them, and I said, how much freedom are you going to give me? You
1: know? Yeah, exactly right.
0: Exactly. Well, I said, a lot. And they went, all right. It didn't come to pass because of things that happened, but... Yeah, and that was definitely part of my conversation. How much? Yeah,. I yeah. play? play around with what I need to play around with. And, and Yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely. I think, Scott, you and I, we've talked offline on this, uh, that we're in similar spaces and, and uh, you know, I would usually, I, I kind of describe myself as a, as a consultant, but I just love the implementation. I love this, the sticky, messy implementation in an organization. Too much to be on the other side of the fence to come in, write the, you know, do the analysis, write the report, do the initial phase, and then somebody else then gets to do the interesting bit as far as I, as far as I see it, you know. So, yeah, absolutely. The ability to do that practice is, is essential, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating. It's an hour already. Hasn't that gone? That's outrageous. Yeah, (laughs) it's outrageous. Hopefully people are still listening. I'm sure they are because it's been very fascinating. So, Adrian, again, thank you very much for your time. uh, you taking time out of your schedule to be on the podcast. Much appreciated. And so thank you
1: absolute pleasure scott genuinely absolute pleasure as always when speaking to you i'm not even sure what we've talked about i've paid no attention we just had a a wild rambling conversation so i hope that wasn't too far off your your scope but absolute pleasure as always scott thanks for inviting me on
0: you're welcome and adrian thank you very much